Hello, this is episode 9 of the Cognitive Gamer Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Blessing. Today we have a special guest, Dr. Jennifer Blessing. We will be talking about what children learn by playing games. First, though, I'll let Jen introduce herself. Hi there, this is Jen Blessing. I'm happy to be your first guest on this podcast. Uh, it's easy to be your first guest because I am married to you. That's correct. Yes, you are. <laughs> so, <laughs> Why don't you say a little bit more about uh, what, what, what you do? I am a developmental psychologist. My background is in studying how kids think, as well as what are social factors that help kids think. So I've done research on how parents help kids in informal settings to learn science and math concepts. I've studied um, how parents and kids interact at museums. For example, I've studied how children tutor one another and how they understand each other's thinking. And I currently work as an adjunct instructor at the University of Tampa, where I teach child development. So I talk about all of these concepts of child uh, cognition. And I also do work full-time as a director of children's ministry at our church, where a lot of the times, the way we get kids to learn about the concepts we're talking about that month, we involve a lot of games. Cool. So you have a lot of observations of kids playing games, it sounds like. Absolutely, including our own two, who are not going to be guests on this podcast anytime soon yet. Right. So let's, well, first, though, let's, uh, let's talk about why we should talk about kids playing games on a podcast about cognitive psychology. Well, I think probably most of your listeners are adults who are engaged in pretty high-level kinds of games, or they're very interested in games that have a lot of strategies and a lot of techniques. But we've got to remember that to get to that point of playing games, you really had to start with the basics, sort of like do-re-mi in The Sound of Music. That's true, yes, okay. And the hard part for parents who are gamers is trying to get back into that mindset of playing games with their kids that don't annoy them greatly. I remember before we really were able to play games as a family, you and I would get very frustrated at playing Sorry Sliders, remember? Lots of games of Sorry Sliders, yes. And they mostly devolved into sliding those sorry pieces across the board and everyone screaming and nothing getting accomplished. That's true, yes. It wasn't so much of a game as just an activity to do. Exactly. Uh, there were other games that our kids had that were just sort of things to keep them busy that had nothing to do with gaming. But if you take an opportunity to play games with kids, there's going to be a great opportunity to help promote them in terms of learning the basics of lots of skills, many of them for later playing more complicated games, but even for basic life skills. So things like playing memory. I remember flipping over memory cards with our own kids and nieces and nephews and how annoying it is to look for that ball that no one else can find. But that had a lot of elements to it that were important for kids in terms of developing their cognition. But when you think about parents and playing games with kids and you think about things like Candyland and uh, Shoots and Ladders and Sorry and all of those... These are not the um, most popular games for adults who are listening to this podcast. Yeah, I actually just double-checked on Board Game Geek, and those games that you just mentioned, uh, Sorry and Candyland and what have you, they're all like in the bottom 10,000 on, on, on Board Game Geek. So right. they're not very popular at all with the board gaming crowd. Exactly, and for good reason, because they are rather basic. But there is a lot to be learned from playing those games 
with the intention of understanding that it is an informal moment of learning. By that we mean it's not a setting in a school or in an out of school, but extracurricular activity where you've got a formalized teacher imparting knowledge on some learners. That if we take game playing with children and blow it apart, we can look at it as full of features that are ripe for learning material, but without actually going, hey, you over there, you're learning this right now. Okay, so you're, you, you mentioned these features. So what type of features are we talking about in these sorts of games? Well, if we go back to Sorry Sliders, certainly learning self-control would be a very important game <laughs> strategy <laughs> and feature. And I even know some adults who probably could use that in playing games. However, that's a bigger topic. But at its basis, the first thing to learn is turn-taking. I'm sure there are lots of parents who have gotten frustrated playing games with kids because they don't understand to wait their turn. The parents or the kids? Both, okay. probably. <laughs> and it is a little bit of self-control, but a little bit about turn-taking. In fact, in my class, I just recently lectured on language development. And I pointed out to my students that it is natural as social creatures, as humans who are teaching one another language, that we naturally are inclined to demonstrate turn-taking as part of our repertoire as humans. So even when moms and dads talk to their babies and go, Oh, aren't you so really cute? We pause as yeah. if we expect a one-month-old to respond to us. And while we know they're not going to, we're modeling turn-taking. So from the get-go, we're setting out to have kids set up to go, your turn, my turn, your turn, my turn. Playing games is a natural way to evolve that to a bigger point where there's more than two people perhaps in the game. Another feature, though, is... Sometimes games, and I've looked on the game shelves at uh, Target and other you know, local retailers looking at the games that are there for kids, and a lot of times they are very high activity, very goal-oriented games that involve a lot of action. Right. So things like um, Hungry Hungry Hippos. This was a very popular game in my house when I was growing uh -huh. up. Yeah, very had, kinetic game. Exactly. Lots of marbles going flying. And so you're getting kids involved and banging on those uh, hippos and getting things flying. Not necessarily turn-taking the way we played it, but a lot of working out some energy kinds of uh -huh. ideas. Our, well, one that I liked when I was little was Don't Break the Ice. Oh, yes. So that kind of falls under that, I guess. Yes, our kids played that too. You remember yep. that? and. Yep. The most annoying part about that game is putting the ice pieces back in. <laughs> There's a lot of lag time between uh, chances to play that game. But yeah, you're banging on ice. And again, it's high energy. And sometimes it devolves into not the actual goals of the game. Uh -huh. Now then, but what does that teach the kids? That, that sort of those, those high energy games like, uh, like Don't Break the Ice and Hungry Hungry Bows, I guess Rock and Talk and Robots maybe. So, so what, what, what's the benefit for the kids there? Probably a lot of high energy, sort of, certainly some fine motor skills, um, not as great as some other games like uh, Operation, for example. Uh -huh. I don't think I ever owned Operation, but I played it with a lot of friends. And it's frustrating to little kids whose fine motor skills and their fingers, I'm waving my fingers like they mm -hmm. can see it on this podcast, but their fine motor skills are, have a lot of work to be developed even into kindergarten. Mm -hmm. Things like playing uh, Don't Break the Ice and uh, Hungry Hungry Hippos, you're banging and even Rock'em Sock'em Robots. You've got some action with your hands and working on skills 
that aren't as finely detailed as handwriting or as playing operation, but it gives them that op that opportunity to give kinetic energy into their hands. Let's put it this way. it's I would be much more fine with our kids playing Rock'em Sock'em Robots than playing on an iPad where all they're doing is moving a finger around on the screen. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot more physicalness to it. That's a word, right? Uh, yep. The physicality of it is very different than playing an app on a game, on a screen. And I guess that you can say that there, then there's kind of a progression from Hungry Hungry Hippos to maybe Rock'em Sock'em Robots to where you do need those really fine motor skills like an operation. Yes. I apparently didn't play Rock'em Sock'em Robots very much because I don't remember how to do it. So <laughs> was there a lot of thumb uh, movement or? Just a maybe a little bit or at least more, more than Hungry Hungry Hippos at least. Okay. So um, there's a lot of times that you can bring some high energy to a little bit more of a cognitive skill to come back to cognition. Like my favorite current game to play with little kids is Happy Salmon. Happy Salmon's a good one. I think you found it. Good kids it. like that one too, yes. <laughs> you do. So you're, you have, I think you can play up to eight, seven, eight, six. I forget the player count, six maybe. Six, um, where you have cards of a certain color and you're trying to match to the other people standing up. So you ha Happy Salmon requires standing, so you've got some physical activity in there. Um, you've got to be able to match, but you're using vocal cues. So you're yelling out um, Happy Salmon or High Five or oh. whatever the card says, and mm -hmm. you're trying to find another player to match you. So it's got that cognition of I've got to know what the card says, share that information with other people, match it with someone, and make a decision point of... Do I continue and persist on trying to find a match or do I switch to another card? Okay. It also has the fun joy of you don't have to take a turn because everyone's screaming at each other at the same time. <laughs> right. So Happy Salmon then has a lot of different features, right? So it has a physicality. Uh, it, uh, it doesn't really have turn-taking per se, uh, but it does have um, the, the matching skill, right? So, so, so matching then would be another feature that a lot of these early games have mm -hmm. uh, that kids can learn from, right? Right. Right. But, you know, while childhood is high energy and lots of physicality, there are a lot of slower games that have goals, whether they're matching or anything, that also are a little frustrating to parents. So I don't really know any parents who like to play Candyland. And I have to confess, we managed to never buy a copy of Candyland for our kids. So that was enjoyable but my, re my remembrance of playing Candyland and I think the board has changed certainly over the years but the basis of it is you have to learn your color skills mm -hmm. so being yeah. able to identify colors matching colors and moving your marker along the board that's a really important skill that again someone who's active in playing board games with their peers as a as a parent is going to find that rather slow, rather mm -hmm. unimportant because they already know their colors. They might get frustrated again because a child maybe doesn't know their colors. And it really does take a mentality of sitting yourself back and remembering what it's like to be five and want to play a game. And you can't play pandemic with a five-year-old, I would argue. Yeah, and we never tried that. No, I, I don't think that would work very well. But if you want to engage your children in game playing, Something like color matching in Candyland is really important to help their skill set and also help them understand how to play a game in general. But the part I really like the most about playing games with kids 
that's going to engage their cognition is that a lot of games are rooted in understanding numbers. And in a lot of ways, that's far more important than color skills, color matching, mm-hmm. but number skills. So your favorite game or a game you remember playing from childhood? Well, we've talked about Hi-Ho Cheerio. I remember playing countless games of that with my mom, uh, Hi-Ho Cheerio. And so how do you play the game? Remember? Uh Let's see, do you take off or put on the cherries? Take you take off. off you take off the cherries, you're, you're picking, picking the cherries, cherries. <laughs> you're picking the cherries, uh, and you roll the spin or you spin the spinner and see how many cherries you get to take off on your particular turn. Exactly. So I remember I don't think I can't believe they made this because it certainly wasn't safe. The little cherries were little plastic ones. It does seem to be a choking hazard. <laughs> and I remember my grandmother had the version of the game that was cardboard uh-huh. and there were little holes, so you had all of the cherries on the tree. And I think you had only your tree to pick from. I think perhaps. that's right. Yeah, yeah. Each each person had their own tree, I think. Yeah. And a little plastic green bucket. Mm-hmm. So you spun the spinner and you counted how many cherries and then you had to count them and pull them off the tree. Certainly, I applaud your mom's tenacity for <laughs> hanging mm. in there for a really boring game. You're spinning it and you're counting items. It's boring to us as adults, but as a kid... Your math skills were being tested, being shaped, and your ability to match numbers was really important. And at some point, isn't there, there's a feature where you lose your cherries, right? You dump them out. So it's not just adding, counting up cherries. I I think there were two or three bad spaces on the spinners that had you put the cherries back on the tree or the cherries came out of your basket or something. Exactly. And I I guess they magically fell back Mm. on the tree. So (laughs) it's not about... Agriculture was just about counting. (laughs) But when it comes to children understanding number, there are really three important basic principles when it comes to understanding number sense that children really start to grasp at around age three, Uh but they don't get honed in and more mature until they go through certainly some periods. It's not this magical, oh, I'm three. I now have all of these skills. But... These are important ones that kids need to know. But first, let's back up for a second. A lot of kids start to develop number sense, again, informally. Mm-hmm. When you go off to kindergarten, even if you don't know how to read or you don't know how to do addition, you've probably got the alphabet down, mm-hmm. you can sing the song, and you probably can count. And probably one of the best ways to learn how to count is hanging out with your parents. And they informally do things like, I'm going to count to three. (laughs) And then you're going to get in the car with your shoes. And so we learn as kids numbers, the number names, the number order that they go in. We have a lot of these opportunities to engage in numbers that we don't even think about. I used to tell our kids, we have five more minutes and then we're getting off the playground. And then usually I'd jump to three after about 30 seconds. They didn't have a good sense of time. But all of these instances of hearing numbers develops into some really important skill sets. So the principles that kids have to come to in terms of counting is after extensive understanding of hearing numbers is that when you count objects like the cherries in Hi-Ho Cheerio, you have to understand, first of all, the principle of one-to-one correspondence. Okay. And what does that mean? Each element you're counting has one and only one number. Okay. So you can't double count. Exactly. So if you're counting cherries off the tree and plucking them off, first of all, you get your fine motor skills there. And as you grab the first cherry, you're going to say... One. There you go. (laughs) 
But how many of us have been playing with kids or even in classrooms with kids or something where they will accidentally double count? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they count the same item twice. Exactly. It's not uncommon to because they're so rote in going one, two, three, four, five that they're counting ahead of how many elements they've got there. So they might say one, two as they're grabbing one because they're mouth's going faster than their brain's going in terms of matching this up. But kids need to come to this understanding that when you count elements, you count um, the spaces on a board or you count mm. the cherries, that it is one for each element. So okay. if you're counting cherries, it's one, two, three. Each one gets one. Okay. So that's uh, that's the first principle of counting is one to one. And I think you said that there was two others, right? Yes. So what, what, what's another principle of counting? The second one is... Again, these all sound sort of sensical to us, the mm -hmm. common sense. But the second one would be stable order, that we always count numbers in the same order. One, two, three, four, five is not going to change. One, three, seven, nine, two is not how we count. And if you've ever heard little kids count, it's sort of like doing the alphabet. How mm -hmm. many kids have sort of gotten their letters wrong if you heard them sing the alphabet song? Or they, you know, think LMNOP is just one element. Uh, but when it comes to numbers, it does take them a little while to make sure that they've got the numbers in the right order. So one, two, three, four, five. I um, confess when we lived in Pittsburgh in a different house, I uh, was concerned because our house number was one, three, two. Yeah, I remember that. Yep. And our son was born there. And had we lived there longer than when he was a baby, I was concerned he would think that numbers went one, three, two instead of one, two, three. That still would have been a stable order, though. It would have been, it would have been the incorrect stable order. <laughs> and sometimes I worry a little too much about silly things like that. But so numbers have a stable order. You cannot count them out of, you can't name them out of order and be accurate. That's the really important thing. Okay. So we have one to one, stable order. And what's the third principle of counting? Is cardinality. And cardinality means, so if you are plucking cherries off of your hi-ho cherry tree, you're going to count each of them one by one. They each get one number. They each go in the stable order. However, that the last number you hit on the last item, that's your total. Okay. So if you spin the spinner and you get to three cherries, you'll count them one, two, three. And then you need to understand that you, if someone asks you how many cherries did you pick off, the answer is not Four, which is the automatic next number you might give, but you have to stop at three, that last element. Okay. So kids up to about age three are working, at around age three, are working on this. Cardinality, you know, sort of getting up to about five objects at a time in, in all of these things. This is not, you know, they're not going to be doing one-to-one to a -one hundred or stable order all the way to a hundred. But mm -hmm. if they can just get the first five or so numbers of a number line, down in terms of one-to-one -one correspondence, the stable order, you can't just make up the order each and every time, and cardinality, they're doing well. But this, of course, doesn't. is just the basis for numbers. Um, you're not going to take your three-year-old to a craps table with just those three numbers in order for multiple reasons. Right, but, so you say, well, uh, excuse me, so, so you say that uh, they start about age three mm -hmm. getting these principles, and then about how long does it take for them to acquire those three principles of counting? Most of them are going to have it in the bag between four and five, but what helps is practice. 
So if you have the ability to sit down and the patients to sit down and play games with three and four year old, giving them those opportunities to practice those numbers and for you as an adult to model the good counting for them is going to help promote that along the way. Because by the time they're hitting about kindergarten age, while they're pretty good at it, number sense doesn't stop there. You've got to add and subtract now. So once you've got the one-to-one, the stable order, and the cardinality down, we can layer more and more mature cognition and, and bigger skills to that. So around kindergarten. Okay. So so about two years there in which they're acquiring those skills. Yeah. And, and as I said, most of the kids will have it earlier, but what we know helps greatly is actually playing games. There's a great set of studies by um, Romani and Siegler, and I apologize if I've said Romani's name wrong, but they've done a lot of work on kids' number sense. Bob Siegler's done a lot of work on how um, the uh, on, on kids counting, kids' uh-huh. math skills, and done a whole career of papers on this. And he and his colleague Romani have been doing research on number sense with low-income children who might not have those opportunities um, in schooling or at home right. and layering games into their opportunities and giving them opportunities to play games uh, once or twice a week. It depends. They have a whole set of studies on this with different variations on this, but giving them where we have a stable um, linear way of counting to play this game and their findings are incredible that playing games with these numbers are going to boost the skill set of low-income kids. Well, that's neat. So we're talking about games like well, high Ontario, like we were talking about, uh, I guess like any role, I mean, games that many parents and adults find boring because they're roll and move um, or spin and move. Uh, so high Ontario shoots and ladders, sorry. Uh, so those sorts of games can really help these, uh, or any kid, uh, but as uh, Romani and Siegler discovered, uh, particularly perhaps low-income low kids that might not have those opportunities uh, other places, uh, but playing those games can really help them uh, develop a, a, a better number sense. Absolutely. And most of their work is done with um, preschoolers. So you were asking about at what age. So this is really with kids who are not quite ready for kindergarten. So kind of boosting up their skill set before they're ready to engage in a classroom where the math skills that they're going to be required to start building on get bigger and bigger, like doing additions and subtraction uh, types of problems. So once you've got those basics down, you're going to be better suited to do things like play shoots and ladders, where you've got a number line, mm-hmm. although it's certainly a square-shaped number line, that involves more counting, bigger numbers, as well as um, even, sadly, subtracting, which is half the reason why kids are not fun to play shoots and ladders with. Now, one feature about the shoots and ladders board is that it has um, uh, numbers on each square. Is that a, an important feature? What does that allow to happen? Well, that makes it harder for very young kids, like preschoolers, three- and four-year-olds, to be able to play it because the spinner, I believe it is, gives you a smaller number, and you might be on space 36, and then you spin a three, and so it is about counting. There's a uh, distinction between the number you're counting and the numbers you're seeing. If you're working with a kid who's able to add 36 plus three, they're going to 
be able to figure out, okay, I add three to 36, but for the littler kids, they're going to just keep counting spaces. One, two, three. Right. And that's an interesting feature of playing games. You get very frustrated when I try to do things like, oh, I rolled a six, so I'm going to go six. And you're very quick to just simply do that automatic adding. The automaticity of adding is certainly ingrained in adults. But like we saw in a, uh, one of my favorite episodes of uh, uh, Tabletop with Will Wheaton right, yep. is the one where they played Ticket to Ride with his wife. And he was making fun of her because she would roll or she would try to count uh, how many yeah, tickets. victory points or whatever. The victory call. points, that's yeah. right. She was counting victory points and she would count the smaller number and not just add on to the bigger number. So if she had five, she would move her finger one, two, three, four, five, where Will would automatically just go... 44 to 49 or whatever. Exactly. So chutes and ladders is mind-numbingly boring to those of us for whom addition is is automatic. So if you are on square 36 and you get a 3, 39 seems to be Mm -hmm. just... But if we're 3 or 4, we don't understand that. So it gives them that edge up. But you asked if it's important to have the numbers on there. No. In fact, having the ability to count absent the numbers itself, seeing the Roman numerals on the board is really important. There was a game that I had found online. I guess I saw it on a um, store shelf and looked it up and it's called Count Your Chickens. And it's a delightful game. Again, one that most gamers would find rather boring, but working with kids, it would be absolutely wonderful where you spin a spinner and move on a board that has no numbers on it whatsoever. Mm -hmm. You're trying to help this um, chicken get all of her chicks back to her roost before the fox gets them. And so your goal is to spin on a spinner and you get a uh, animal that you need to move to the next space that has that animal. But then your next goal is your goal is as you move to count how many spaces you've moved. So you're adding numbers onto a very visual, very uh, imagery based board. So you would say spin a two and count one, two, or I'm sorry, you'd spin a sheep or whatever it might be, and you move to the sheep, but you count along the way, and maybe it's two or four spaces. Whatever number that cardinality, that last number you get to, is the number of chicks you get to rescue and bring back to mom. So wow. it's a simple game that is um, very cooperative. It's about turn-taking, but it's also about helping everyone count out loud together. And it's a great way of getting kids to understand one-to-one, mm-hmm. cardinality, stable order, and getting them to then use that number to count out all the chicks. And it doesn't even have a single number on the game board anywhere. And that's a really important skill to understand that numbers have meaning not just looking at the Roman numeral written on board. Right. Well, this has been a great conversation. It has. Yeah, so thanks for being uh, a guest on the show. Maybe we'll have you back later to talk about something else. Would you like that? Absolutely. If uh, your listeners like listening to me, sure. I'm delighted to have been your first guest. Okay, well, thank you very much. I hope this discussion of what children learn by playing games has been interesting. For those of you who have kids or you play games with kids, maybe you look more favorably on your 100th game of Candyland or Shoots and Ladders. While simple, these games can help in developing important cognitive skills like turn-taking, goal-setting, and number sense. Uh, On the next episode, we'll talk about language and the use of narrative in playing games. As always, I welcome any comments or questions you may have, so please email me, steve at cognitivegamer.com, and also visit my website, cognitivegamer.com. Also, you can like me on Facebook, Cognitive Gamer, or follow me on Twitter, at 
cognitive underscore gamer. Until next time, remember to think about what you play and have fun doing it.